If you're just joining us today, uh, we're going through the Ten Commandments uh, this summer, and today we are to the Third Commandment, which Jeremy just read from Exodus 20, verse 7. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Uh, to understand what God is trying to protect us from here, uh, all we need to do is consider uh, the popular political pejorative rhino, right? Which means Republican in name only. It's, a, it's an acronym. Uh, the term was originally used in 1920, and it rises in popularity anytime there's an ideological struggle inside the Republican Party between populist conservatives outside of D.C. and inside the Beltway politicians. Whenever a Republican calls another Republican a rhino, what they are accusing them of is being a hypocrite, of using the name Republican to get something they want for themselves, like money or votes or power, but then having no intention of using the power of their public office to faithfully execute a Republican ideological principle that the accuser holds dear. In the third commandment, God is warning us that just as politicians misuse the name of their political party for selfish gain without any intention of remaining faithful to their political party's agenda, so also we can misuse the name of our God without any intention of remaining faithful to his earthly agenda. So how does that happen? Well, God's word answers that question when we pay careful attention to how it talks about God's name. The first time God's name shows up in redemptive history is right after Cain murdered Abel, when God graciously gave Adam and Eve another son. We read about it in Genesis 4, 25 through 26, where we read this. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so from this verse, we learn that calling on the name of the Lord is a synonym of a lifestyle of grateful worship and dependent prayer, that that's essentially what calling on the name of the Lord is. It's a heart of gratitude and dependence that overflows into public worship. You see something similar described in Psalm 116, verses 12 through 14, where the psalmist declares, how can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take up the cup of salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. So the opposite of this is religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy occurs anytime we adopt a public religious persona while living a private life of sinful self-delusion. Jesus had to confront this on a regular basis during his earthly ministry. One time he was confronting a group of believers who were neglecting their parents, and he did it this way in Matthew 15. He said, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, 
whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you've nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. What Jesus was confronting here were publicly religious people who wanted the prestige of contributing to the building of this new temple that was taking place during Herod's lifetime. They wanted to look good in front of their fellow believers, but the way that they were doing it was telling their parents that their assets were committed to the public building of this temple while neglecting to take care of their parents' physical needs. But see, God's word's super clear that as parents, we're to sacrificially love our children when they're in a time of need, and when our parents are in a time of need, we're to sacrificially, as their children, take care of them. This was in a time where there was no social safety net, and so these guys were basically saying, no, I need to hold on to these assets, mom and dad, because I've committed to them to the temple. I'm not going to give them to the temple right now. I'll do that later. Right now, I'm just going to hold on to them and benefit from them. But look really good because during the worship service, I'm going to march up front and make my pledge that, you know, this is my contribution. Now, how does God feel about that? Well, he hates it. All right, this is something God abhors. Now, here's why this is so significant for me personally. I am a professional Christian, right? My entire career is essentially made up of standing up front publicly and t dedicating myself and other people to God. And so this is kind of a job hazard for me. It would be very easy for me to honor God with my lips while my heart was far from him. Uh, in the earlier service, uh, before the offering, Eric said, hey, you know, this is an opportunity for us to give God this song, right? We can actually not just give him our money, we can give him ourselves through this song. And I made it about one verse before my brain kicked into thinking about, ooh, how am I going to look? This is my first time in front of OP. How's my sermon? Do I feel really good about this or not? What am I going to do for the benediction? And I was all the way to the fourth verse before I was like, oh my gosh, I literally am breaking the third commandment right now during the offering when Eric has told me to offer God this song. I've kicked into autopilot and I can do this. I can pray. I can sing songs. I can preach without engaging my heart right? Because I've been doing this my whole life. But maybe you're, you can too. Maybe you've been a Christian long enough to kick into autopilot, to sing every one of these songs and never engage your heart, not mean a word you're saying, just be like, yep, yep, just kick the recorder and we're going to go in Christ alone. I, I could sing the whole song right now without even thinking about it. And so to protect us from this proclivity, God's word identifies four different ways that we can misuse the name of the Lord for selfish gain. And they are breaking our promises, ignoring his commands, misunderstanding prayer, and trying to establish our own righteousness. So let's look at those together. The first way is by breaking the promises that we make in his name. One day, uh, my son Davis, who's now 23, when he was about five or six, Holly came home and uh, she kept a stash of candy above our coffee maker. 
So she went in to, you know, get the candy of choice, which, you know, was probably like Valentine's hearts or something left over because I'm a good husband and provide great gifts like that. But lo and behold, the bag was empty. And uh, so she went to our son, Davis, five or six at the time, and said, uh, Davis, any idea, you know, who took my candy? Davis thought about it for a second. He said, I think it was Emily, our cat. <laughs> cat. So uh, needless to say, a few, you know, hours later, we looked under Davis's pillow, and lo and behold, there was a big stash of candy wrappers all up under that pillow. Now, here's why I bring that up. There was never a point in our parenting when we sat down with Davis and said, hey, listen, son, someday you're going to get into a situation that you need to get out of, and I just need to explain how to do that. You need to learn how to lie, and here's how you do it. You make something up in whole cloth. It needs to be kind of plausible, but it's basically to blame shift and to cover your butt, right? Like, that's, that's the plan. Why did I never have to teach my kid how to do that? Well, because we are born with a sin nature, and we come up with this all on our own. You have to teach your children how to tell the truth. You don't have to teach your kids how to lie. There's no, no, no instruction required for us to come up with that. And that's why God has to give us this warning. In Leviticus 19, 12, do not swear falsely by my name. Profaning the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. What God is warning us about here is our proclivity to say, listen, I swear to God when people are questioning our truth-telling. If we never lied, we would never have to call on the name of God to shore up the promises we make. People would simply believe us. But the truth is that we lie often enough that we do have to do this, and the more you have to do this, the more you are a liar, right? The more frequently you have to swear that you're telling someone the truth, it means that you are regularly not doing so. Otherwise, there would be no need for you to like glow up your truth-telling. And that's why Jesus gives us a very simple solution for this proclivity. Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes. And your no me no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. The second way that we break the third commandment is by ignoring God's clear instructions. In, Matt, in Leviticus 18.21, God says, You are not to sacrifice any of your children in the fire to Moloch. Do not profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. What God was trying to avoid here was confusion in the life of his people because they were traveling from the pagan country of Egypt where they had been enslaved for 450 years into the pagan nation of Canaan. And both countries had cultural proclivities to do this deplorable practice, which is to sacrifice your kids on the altar of Moloch, which is the Hebrew word for power. And so what they would do is they would try to show 
their gods that they were dead serious by sacrificing a child in order to get the thing that they wanted. And God was having to say to his people, I hate that. Don't bring that cultural practice in to my worship. I don't want you to have anything to do with that. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm glad we don't do that as a culture. But anytime we use abortion as a means of birth control or so that we can continue to climb the corporate ladder, we're doing something that God hates. We're, we're sacrificing children to the idols of our age, which is sexual self-indulgence and material gain. That's what we're doing. God says this in Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Detest what is evil and cling to what is good. But that's not the only way that we profane God's name. Anytime we break any commandment, we're profaning God's name, right? James, Jesus' younger brother said, if you break one law, you've broken them all, right? You've broken the whole law by breaking one law. So anytime we lie or cheat or steal or greedily hold on to assets that God wants us to give away and we justify it by saying, well, I've prayed about it. You know, I've prayed about it and I feel fine about breaking this command. Or we say, hey, you don't understand my special circumstances. Let me tell you why I'm the exception to God's law. God wants me to be happy and having this inappropriate relationship makes me happy. Um, we are profaning God's name. The third way that we break the commandment is by misunderstanding prayer. Jesus said in John 14, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, because we're consumer Americans and we're, we're so affected by our technology, which is like we have an Amazon approach to prayer, right? Where we're like, everything easy all the time, right? That's what we want. And so when we read this verse, we really fixate on the whatever. We think, oh yeah, whatever you ask for in my name. And we say, oh yeah, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna manifest the perfect job and the perfect spouse and the perfect raise and the perfect house and the perfect kids and the perfect vacation in Jesus' name. Right? That's how we pray. We pray, Lord, my will be done in heaven so that it can be done on earth. That's what I want. And we think that's what Jesus is offering us here. But what we miss is that in doing so, we're treating Jesus' name like a magic incantation. It's, it's really almost a form of sorcery or divination. You're just throwing a little glow up on the end of your prayer to boost your, your, your desire up into heaven. But Jesus taught us how to pray. And this is what he said in Matthew 6. He said, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, the, the purpose of prayer is to honor God's name as holy. And when we do that, then we realize that as we pray, what we're actually asking God to do is to empower us to do the works that Jesus did so that the Father may be glorified in the Son on all the earth. 
That's what we're to ask for when we pray for something in Jesus' name. So it's more like this. If you were to show up at my house and knock on the door, and my wife Holly answered the door, and you said, hey, listen, Mark sent me over here to grab his iPad because I'm on my way to the office. And she said, oh, great. Come on in. Take it. And you left. That would be a great thing to do in my name if I had sent you to get my iPad. I would be delighted that you did it, and it would be appropriate. If, however, I had not sent you to my house to get my iPad, and you did that in my name, you would be stealing, right? That would be breaking and entering, and I would abhor it. And so, a prayer isn't automatically glorifying to God or glorious or delightful to Him or not simply because you tag an in Jesus' name on the end of it. The issue is, why are you doing this? Did Jesus send you to ask his Father to empower you to do this for him? If he did, then what will it look like? What are the kind of works that God's going to empower us to do when we really pray in Jesus' name? Jesus said they're going to look like this. You're going to deny yourself, and you're going to take up your cross every day, and you're going to follow me. That's what it's going to look like. You're going to be slow to anger, and you're going to be quick to forgive. You're going to love your enemies and you're going to pray for those who persecute you. That's what it's going to look like. And that's when the Father is going to be glorified in the, in the Son as His will is done in your life on earth as it is in heaven. The fourth way that God wants us to avoid breaking the third commandment is by convincing us not to try to establish our own righteousness. When describing what this is like, the Apostle Paul explains it this way as an ex-Pharisee. He says this about his people, Romans 9. But Israel, uh, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over, a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. See, we misuse the name of the Lord any time we use it to try to establish our own righteousness instead of depending on Jesus to be our righteousness. Now, um, I am an expert at this. Um, I see the men in halls are here today. Their sons were at our uh, Tuesday night uh, out at Bible study that we do at South End. And we were hanging out at uh, Suffolk Punch afterwards. And uh, I was telling them stories about their parents when we were in college. I wasn't telling them stories about me. And the reason is because I was the most self-righteous jerk on the planet when we were in college. And uh, the reason was because I grew up in a church-attending non-Christian family where it was very easy for me to rebel against my parents by becoming a Pharisee. And so I did. I became, I, I went to church Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, I did door-to-door -door evangelism to their shame in my neighborhood. Um, I would witness to people by blasting Striper in my Camaro as I would drive around campus at Wake Forest. Just humiliating things like that. 
But uh, when we were in college together, I would pray this stuff. I'd be like, Lord, I want to be the Billy Graham of my generation. Lord, I want to be the kind of Christian that if you were writing a Bible, I'd be in it. And I can just see God laughing and go, well, yeah, yeah, you'd be in it. Like, you know, Jonah or, uh, you, know, mm, you know, Peter on the bad days, right? Um, and so what happened is I, I interviewed to go on Young Life staff. And I was meeting with uh, Phil Anderson and Bill Goins and uh, a couple other folks, Ken Schultz from here in Charlotte. And I was so arrogant, I was certain that I had the job. In fact, I thought, oh, I'm the greatest Young Life leader ever in the history of Young Life. And so I'm really here to interview these area directors to see which of these wonderful people is going to get to hire and work with moi. This is going to be great. They're like, Mark, well, tell us about your relationship with Jesus. And I was like, well, here are all the things I do for Jesus. I pray half an hour a day. I've memorized all of 1 John. I started a Young Life Club that's multi-ethnic. I served a whole summer in Camden, New Jersey in urban, uh, in urban promise. You know, I did all this stuff. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we know what you do for God, but like, tell us about your relationship with Jesus. And I was confused, and I was like, this is it. Like, you do not seem properly impressed. And so when I left, I thought, that interview did not go as well as I thought it was going to go. And so Bill and Phil took me out to lunch afterwards, and they were like, hey, listen, um, Mark, listen, here's the deal. Um, you know a lot about Jesus, and you do a lot of things for Jesus, but you are so arrogant that we're not sure that you know Jesus at all. We're not even sure if you're a Christian. And I was so busted. I was like, oh, God, I'm so caught. And they said, listen, you're not going to work for Young Life. And not only that, you're not going to work anywhere we know anybody. Like, we're going to oppose you in ministry. You are compulsively religious, and you need some Christian counseling. You need some help. And I remember thinking, I can finally relax. I was getting so tired having to be the most righteous person on the planet. It was killing me. And so I started meeting with this guy named Steve Angle who'd just come back from the Institute of Biblical Counseling where he'd been trained with Roger Edwards and uh, the guys at the Barnabas Center. And I started meeting with him every week. And for the first time, I really started to understand the gospel. It was a big moment for me. Jesus warns people like me, maybe someone like you, this in Matthew 5, I mean Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. This is the most disturbing truth about breaking the third commandment. Judas was great at it. He healed people in Jesus' name. He led people to Christ. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, it wasn't like all the heads snapped and looked at Judas. Everybody's like, what? They trusted him so much that he kept all the money. The weird thing about breaking the third commandment is that when you're doing it, you almost never know. 
In fact, you often think that you're doing the will of God. Paul thought he was doing God's will on his road to Damascus to kill Christians. Um, the guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center believed they were doing God's will. The Phelps who, um, you know, like protested outside the funerals of veterans thought they were doing God's will. The people, some of whom were invading the White House and, the, you know, Congress on June 6th thought they were doing God's will. The, the, the strange thing about breaking the third commandment is that when you're doing it, you almost never know. So how can we know whether or not we're breaking the third commandment? Well, Paul tells us how. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is the key to keeping the third commandment. That's why Jesus summarized the law by saying, what does it mean? It means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. The only way to actually keep the third commandment is to let God love you first. How? By letting him give you his name, letting him tell you who he is. And how does he do that? He does it by sending the word of God, a.k.a. the name of God, to dwell among us. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has revealed him. This is why Jesus could say to Philip in John 14 when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So what exactly does Jesus reveal to us about the name of God? What does, he, what does he reveal to us about the heart of God, about the being of God? What does he show us that we wouldn't know apart from him? And it's this, that our God is willing to lay his life down for people who are accusing him of blasphemy. That he's willing to say to his father, not my will, but your will be done. And his will is that by his blood, he's going to purchase us for God so that we can be adopted into his family. Our names can be written into the book of life. And by the power of his spirit dwelling within us, his father can become our Abba, can become our daddy. Which is why in Galatians 4, Paul says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because your sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, for you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Which brings us to this table. You see, on the night that he was to be betrayed by Judas, the hypocrite who was breaking the third commandment, after Judas had left, he said, hey, listen, this is my body which is broken for you. Take of it, each of you. And in a similar manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup in the new covenant which is in my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Drink of it, each of you. And so what this table is, is it's an invitation to those who know you need a righteousness that you can never produce. That your only hope is for his own name's sake, God will glorify himself by forgiving your sins instead of judging them. And how does that take place exactly? Because you're coming to this table saying, Jesus, you're my only hope. You're my only hope. You're the reason that the Father should receive me into his family. I don't deserve it, but you deserve it. Your righteousness is more significant than my sin. Your atonement is bigger than my law-breaking. But this table comes with a warning. And the warning is this. Don't come hypocritically. right? Don't come to this table to seem instead of to be. Don't come up here if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure that Christianity is true, but I don't want to be embarrassed. Don't come up here if you're thinking, um, yeah, I know Jesus really wants me to forgive fill in the blank, but nah, I want to hold on to bitterness and resentment. I think I'm good. Don't come if you're thinking, yeah, I know that, you know, God, I took this vow in his name when I became a member of this church or when I got married, and I know I said for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. I mean, I know I said that, but nah, I'm not really feeling that anymore, so I'm good. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Only come to this table if you're ready to be needy, if you're ready to need grace. If you're not, we're really glad you're here. It's a great first step. But we encourage you to pray some of the prayers that we put in the bulletin. If you're wondering whether Christianity is true, ask the God of all truth to lead you into what's true. If you're struggling with besetting sin, then ask the God who is the deliverer, right? The, the only name under heaven by which you can be saved to come and set you free. If you're struggling with forgiveness, ask Jesus to come and pour the grace of the Lord into your own heart so that you will see rightly just how much you've been forgiven so that out of the overflow of that, you can forgive. But if you're here and you need grace, then this is the place to come and get it. Because Jesus said, come to me. All of you who are needy, that's why I've come, to seek and to save you. It's our practice here at Hope to exit on the right side of your aisle. Come forward, take the element, take it back to your seat on the left side. Uh, the outer rings are grape juice. The inner rings are real wine. If you need gluten-free bread, there's a little uh, COVID uh, thing that has one of those little sad gluten white wafers under the lid. So I pray for you as you take it in, in compassion.
So let me pray as the officers come forward, and then you may come forward as you feel led. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. Um, thank you that you warn us about our proclivities to self-deceive. Help us to repent of our hypocrisy and instead, with grateful hearts and dependent prayer, call on your name, Lord, today as we take these elements in your name. In your name we pray. Amen.